When I was a kid, uh, there were certain parts of the Bible that I enjoyed more than other parts, if I'm going to be honest. Uh, There was the book of Revelation, uh, the ten plagues on Egypt, uh, the book of Joshua, uh, David and Goliath was a classic. The rest of the Bible was kind of, you know, it was just poetry and instructions, and it just didn't kind of hit me. Well, Galatians 6, 10 through uh, 20 in particular was a notable exception uh, because it talked about armor, fiery arrows, and warfare, and strategy. When I became a Christian years later in high school, this passage meant more to me because I realized that it wasn't just talking about armor and fiery arrows and strategy and war for its own sake. Paul was actually talking about how Christians can learn to live the Christian life and have victory in it. Even though at the time, you know, 16, 17 years old, I wasn't even sure what spiritual warfare was, I did appreciate Ephesians chapter 6. Well, as I continued to to mature in my faith, I realized that there is a spectrum on this topic of spiritual warfare. On the one hand, you have those who I think over-spiritualize spiritual warfare. So it's this really kind of mystical, fantastical, amazing thing that if you made it a movie, uh, Stephen King would write the screenplay and J.J. Abrams would direct it. You know, spiritual warfare was kind of like for those Christian commandos that you called in when things got really bad. Uh, it, It was almost as if it's a combination of Uh, Ghostbusters and the Matrix and Touched by an Angel, all wrapped up into one. Now, on the other end of that spectrum, though you had people who would tell me, well, ah, you know, Ephesians 6 and a lot of the apocalyptic literature, Revelation, that's all imagery and metaphor, and that was in a pre-modern time. We know better than that. The only kind of people who actually think that you engage spiritual beings are people who live deep in the the jungles of the Amazon, right? We know better than that. But, you know, if you think about it, you look at pop culture, clearly that's not the way our culture views the topic. Think of the the movies that came out in the last three to five years. Two things are clear. Culture believes in the supernatural and believes the world's going to end, right? I mean, I just was at a movie theater with my son, and all the previews were either the supernatural or the end of the world. So we know that's not quite it either. Now, the way Paul wrote Ephesians 6 and put it right where he did in the letter in the epistle of Ephesians tells us, in Paul's mind, spiritual warfare is a little bit of both ends of that extreme. In other words, it is spiritual, but it also is the regular and the normal. It is not one or the other. Either extreme justifies the other extreme, and neither one of them gets them right. Think about the book of Ephesians, and think about where we just got through studying the book of Ephesians. Paul just got through writing for chapters on on people discerning the will of the Lord, wives submitting to your husbands, husbands loving your wives, children obeying your parents, parents nurturing your children, masters and slaves, treat each other the same. And then he follows it up with several verses on warfare. So what's going on? Is Paul kind of drifted off topic the chains were too tight and blood circulation got cut off. Maybe he thought the epistle was getting dull. He needs to spice it up a little bit. Nope, that's not what's going on at all. Paul places these 10 verses on spiritual warfare exactly where he wanted to place them. Because why placing them there, what he's communicating to the Ephesians and to us is that spiritual warfare takes place in the everyday affairs of the way we live our lives. 
What Paul is saying is if the gospel cannot sing and flourish in wives and husbands, families and work relationships, the gospel is not going to flourish anywhere. You see, this is not off topic for Paul. Paul gets it that the real battlefield of the spiritual life is the battlefield of everyday life. And as he wraps up the book of Ephesians, he needs these believers to know, and us, this critical truth that if we are not prepared for the battle, we will be decimated. And so Paul draws on metaphors that were very common to those people using the armament of the Roman centurion to illustrate how serious this situation is. You see, this whole, one of the probably the most extended passages on spiritual warfare fits right smack dab in the way we live our lives, the everyday, the common, we might even say the mundane activities. Because that's where spiritual battle and everyday life, that's always what's happening. And I'm very, the, the irony's not lost on me that the day I'm talking about warfare and armor, I am flanked by pastel green and pink dresses made out of pillowcases. But that illustrates my point. Spiritual reality and warfare bumps up into everyday life all the time. And just because it might seem cute doesn't mean it's any less serious. And that's why Paul put it right where he did. So in this last section of Ephesians, Paul wants us to understand how we live the Christian life. And he does it with three driving verbs. Be strong, put on, or excuse me, be strong, stand, and pray. And so uh, see, you see the screens behind me. This is how our passage breaks down. Verses 10 through 13, being prepared for the battle, Paul says, be strong. Verses 14 to 17, you need to have a plan for the battle, and Paul says, stand. And then finally, being, having a predisposition for the battle, and Paul says, you need to pray. Verses 18 through 20. So with that, let me pray and ask the Lord to bless the teaching of his word, and we'll jump right into Ephesians chapter 6. Father, we thank you that you knew exactly what we needed. You know what these Ephesians needed? We need the same thing right now. Life is a war. It feels that way sometimes. And Father, like the, the fog of war, sometimes it's confusing. We don't know which way is right or left, and we need help, we need assistance, we need armament, we need to survive. And Father, the spiritual realities are no less real because we can't see them. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us they're even more real. So, Father, would you help us to attend to this passage, to attend to having the right armament so that we might live the life you intend us to live? What Paul wrote, all these re- relational issues come down to the reality that this is spiritual warfare. And, Father, we need to fight for our families. We need to fight for our communities. We need to fight the real battle. We can't do it in our own. We can only do it in you. So we pray you bless the teaching of your word right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, life, life's hard. I need to tell you that, right? It beats at every one of us day in and day out. And the problem with life is that it's every day. When this one's done, there's going to be another one tomorrow. With all the pressures and stressors in our lives, men and women must be strong. And so Paul's opening command here is very significant because Paul knows that human beings are the kind of beings that tend to draw their source, their strength from sources other than God. And so he wants to talk about that first right as he starts Ephesians chapter 6. And whether or not you're a Christian, 
We all are looking for resources that help us get through our lives. The question isn't if you're doing this. We all do it. The question is what you're drawing your strength from and the different ways you do it. And some draw their strength from uh, the good old Protestant work ethic, you know, uh, burn the candle at both ends, work 25 hours a day, eight days a week kind of thing. When I was in an airport in Louisville a couple weeks ago, I came across Time Magazine, and the feature cover was on this very topic. The title was, Who Killed Summer Vacation? And the feature article was talking about how Americans are no longer abiding by our own cherished institution we made, and that's the summer vacation. Billions of dollars, the article said, employees are giving up to employers because they no longer take that time off because they're always working at the job. Some are doing it because they realize they need to show that they're irreplaceable in an uncertain economy. Others are doing it because that's the only thing they know. You know that the definition of a vacation has changed, right? You know what a vacation is called now? A vacation is where you work in a place with better scenery. That's the new definition of vacation in America. So some people are drawing their strength from just working harder, making ends meet that way, that their, their identity is wrapped up in their work. Other people have looked to the, the, the miracle of modern medicine. Slate Magazine read an article about two years ago talking about a trend among college and working professionals who will use uh, psychostimulants uh, to take, so medications that we normally are prescribed to people with ADHD and ADD, people who don't have that are actually taking these psychostimulants because it gives them an edge, it helps increase their productivity, and gives them a laser focus. And this is a trend that's been dubbed as neuroenhancing. And this is happening on college campuses and professional business places everywhere. So there are those who are just doing the Protestant work ethic, there are those who are neuroenhancing, and then there are those who are doing the, the good old-fashioned self-improvement model, goodreads.com, and their database has 55,000 books on self-help and self-improvement. So we're all trying to become strong. Either we're doing it through just working harder, or we're doing it through changing our physiology or changing our psychology, but everything we are trying to do is to get the kind of strength we need to get through this life. But look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. He says, be strong, but notice he's not saying it in yourself. He doesn't say in your own confidence, in your own achievements. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Well, I say, well, well then how does one do that? Okay, Paul, we get that. Be strong. We're not going to be strong in our, our psychostimulants. We're not going to be strong in, in burning the candle at both ends. We want to be strong the way you're saying, in the Lord, in the strength of his might. But how do we do that? And he answers in verses 11 and 13. Notice almost the identical phrase, put on the whole armor of God, verse 11, verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. So in answering the question, how, the way you become strong, the way you fulfill that command is by putting on and taking up the various pieces of the armor of God. But now, why is that the case? Why do we need to take this armor up? Yes, to be strong, but why do we need to be strong? Paul says it, so you can stand, the second half of verse 11, so you may be able to stand against the schemes or methods. We get our word method from the Greek word here, the stand up against the methods of the devil. And the reason you need to be able to do that, he says, in verse 12, is because our battle is not against flesh and blood, Paul says. 
He has this list in the second half of verse 12. But our battle is against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and the spiritual forces of evil, he writes, in the heavenly places. So Paul's saying, look, you need to have the armor of God so you can stand up against the schemes and methodologies of the evil one because our battle's not against the things of this world. So your, 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 your issue is not really with your coworker. Your issue is not really with your wife or your husband or your neighbor. Your issue is the issue that's actually behind that issue. Your issue is with the, the slight you took to your pride when they said that comment that you took more personally than you should have. That's the issue at hand. The issue that you really have issue with isn't necessarily what was said that made you angry. The issue that you really have is that anger's inside of you that comes out so easy. You see, our, Paul says it's not against the flesh and blood. Our battle's against the things behind that. And some of the methods that the enemy will use, Paul's already talked about. In a, if you're a note taker, write down Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 and 27. Paul's talking about anger and, and falsehood and unwholesome talk or any kind of conduct that's characteristic of the old man. Paul says that's how the enemy gets a foothold. And if you're not wearing the armor, you're not going to be able to understand and stand up against the schemes and methodologies. And once the enemy gets a foothold, right, it's a military phrase that establishes a beachhead, he can start landing his troops on the beachhead, and then then you can't stop him. Paul says, you need to be aware of this. This is what's going on. And the devil's methodologies and schemes, while quite frankly, they're not that that, um, numerous, it really, you could say he's a one-trick pony, but he's so good at it, right? The, the enemy's schemes and methodologies, his tactics, Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, he engages in trickery and subterfuge. As a matter of fact, Paul says we should not be surprised that false apostles come uh, looking so slick and clean because after all, Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light, Right? I mean, no temptation is going to come upon you. You're never going to have the conversation with a minion that says, Hi, I'm a demon. I'm prepared to ruin your life. So let me show you how wicked and evil things are. You're never going to take the bait. Right? Temptation and trickery and schemes are going to more look like, uh, I remember a 1967 Mustang that I found, that me and a buddy found. That we then saw that, oh, we needed that, and he needs a car, and Celeste doesn't have to know that we'll take out all the savings to buy it, because it's only $1,000, and with a little elbow grease, we can fix this thing up. We didn't see that as the schemes of the enemy to make a really bad financial decision, and almost cause, cause actually a huge fracture in, in Monty and Celeste's marriage. You see, that's how the temptations come, recognizing neither one of us were mechanics and don't know anything about fixing a Mustang, so buying one's insane that that was all messed up. Temptation's going to come in a a variety of ways, never kind of looking as its true nature. You know, the the Inuits in in, in deep, deep parts of Alaska have an ingenious way of catching wolves. And excuse me, because this is going to be kind of graphic, but it so beautifully captures this. You know, they don't chase the wolves. There's no way to go after the wolves. They're too cunning. They're too fast. And so what they simply do is they grab a a, a nice dagger about eight inches thick, and they freeze it in some blood of another animal. And then they bury that dagger face up in the snow and hide. And the wolf catches the scent of the blood and starts to lick it like a popsicle. And he cannot tell at one point that he's no longer licking the popsicle, 
but licking his own blood that he cut on the blade. And he continues and continues to drink his own blood as he loses his blood and then dies. The enemy's tricks and schemes and ways of temptation will never be an eight-inch dagger sticking out of the ice, but it will be covered in things that appeal to us and draw us to it. And before we know it, we've been duped by the enemy's schemes. Paul says, don't be deceived. Wear the armor of God so you can discern what is happening in your life, so you're not taken out of the battle. One of the most insightful insights into sin I've ever read was written by a man named Albert Walters in his book, Creation Regained, Biblical Basics for a Reformational Worldview. He says this. You don't have to read that. You probably can't see that. But he says this. Sin's deforming effect brought about by the fall is so pervasive that our ability to discern how deformed something is is itself deformed, so we no longer see things the way we ought to. And since our own ability to discern the perfectly formed from the deformed is itself deformed, we don't see sin for what it is. An aberration in God's creation, an intruder, a usurper. No, we just don't see it as anything different to warrant such attention at all. Here's this last line. Possibly the most dangerous thing about sin is that sin blinds us all the while maintaining the illusion that we still see clearly. That is frightening. That is frightening, but isn't it so true? You've seen it in the lives of either your family or some friends you've had that they're making choices. They're driving their lives into a ditch and you can all see it, but this person can't. It's because their ability to discern the perfect and right and good from the wicked is itself deformed. You know, I like to say that we see ourselves clearly in the same way we see ourselves in a carnival mirror. Right? That, that is me, but it's all misshapen and it's all out of kilter. This Walters is saying is that our ability to even see the wrong is itself been distorted. And Paul says you need to be strong in order that you can recognize such deceit and fight against it. Look at verse 12. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, he says, for we do not wrestle. I love the fact that Paul uses a very intimate term for this warfare. Now, he could have, he could have used terms about a cat of nine tails, or excuse me, a, a catapult, or a trebuchet, or anything like that, but he uses a term, wrestle, that's just close quarters combat, mano y mano. You are looking into the eyes of your opponent. You can smell his breath. You can taste his sweat as you are fighting it out. This is not some disconnected, you know, Air Force pilot uh, launching a smart missile from a thousand miles away. You are there grabbing each other's tunics with your knives in hand, wrestling over this battle. And Paul says that is the way you need to see what's going on. And believers need to be prepared. They need to be strong. They need the full armor of God. And when they have the armor of God and they're in that battle, they need to be able to stand. So Paul's saying, look, you need to be prepared. The way you get prepared is you be strong. The way you get strong is you put on the whole armor of God. You get strong in the Lord, in the power of his might, 
And, and we, we really have to say here that that, that is a, a metonym for the grace of God. We don't want to be strong in our own moral achievements. As good as those are, if that is our strength, that will not suffice. We don't want to be strong in our religious involvement. As good as that might be, if that is our strength, then we will, be at, at, we will have problems. Because if I'm strong in my moral achievements or my religious involvements, then I will be given to pride. I, I, I will say, well, I was able to do it. Why can't you? But if I'm strong in grace, recognizing I need that every day, there's no place for pride. And Proverbs 11, 12, 11, 2 says, with pride comes disgrace. So when Paul says be strong, he says be strong in grace, the armor of God. Let's talk about now how, what that looks like. He talks about being strong. Now this talks about standing, verse 14. That's the second driving verb in this text. Stand, therefore. I love that. Stand, and then he describes the centurion's armor. Now, we don't want to read too much into each metaphor beyond maybe the obvious application, but, but Paul's describing certain pieces of the Roman armor with certain attributes of, of, of godliness, you could say. And the first is, he says in verse 14, making sure you have the belt of truth wrapped around you firmly. Now, in antiquity, a lot of times they didn't have, you know, they didn't have pants like we do. They had what you might call tunics. And you've heard the expression in the Old Testament, gird up your loins, those tunics. They would kind of tighten them up, cinch them up, so that during vigorous activity, your tunic's not going to fall off. Well, in the same manner, the Roman centurions would have a belt that would cinch up the tunic and connect it to the rest of the armor. It was the linchpin that held it all together. Paul's saying, look, the linchpin that holds your life together has to be truth. That is the foundational item that holds the whole thing together. You know, with my kids, the one thing that, that, that dad will, will, I don't want to say lose it, but take so serious above everything else. I mean, I, I told my wife, honey, I don't care if they end up driving the car and crashing it as they get older, but I don't want them to learn to lie. So anytime I get the sense that there's lying happening, I take that extremely seriously. Do you know why? I mean, we've got tons of great parents here. Some of you must have the same reasoning here. Why? Why is lying the most important thing I want to deal with in my children's lives and their hearts? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. I wasn't even thinking of that one, but yes, that destroys relationships because there's no trust there. Absolutely. The reason for me is that once my children or anybody can cross the threshold of truthfulness, There is nothing then that stops them from all manner of deceit and destruction. You realize that? I mean, my kid can put peanut butter in the VCR, well, in the Blu-ray player all they want these days. I don't care. My kids are too old for that. But when they were younger, to me, the big issue was I don't want them to engage in falsehood. Because once they can do that, nothing holds them back. Integrity and truthfulness is the linchpin that holds it all together. The second half of verse 14, Paul talks about this breastplate of the centurion that covered them from neck to waist. He says, righteousness is necessary in overcoming evil. Purity protects us. In a culture that, that, that does not value purity, we need to remember that purity is a protection for us. I cannot stress that enough. If there is any secret sin that you harbor in your heart or in your life, the enemy will ferret it out and he will trumpet it out there for all to see. 
We see this all the time in the political realm, don't we? If there's any secret sin in a politician's past, people will find that and just decimate their campaign. Let me ask you this. What would I find if I Googled your name? Would I think differently of of you as a church member if I Googled your name? Or would it remind me of, yep, yep, this is Ray. Yes, yes, this is the Jeff I know. Or would I say, whoa, Ralph, hmm, what would I find if I Googled your name? You can Google mine. That's fine. If I'm going to Google yours, Google mine. The point is, are we living our lives that if someone Googled us, they would say, yes, I knew they were a Christian? Or would they be shocked? Does purity protect us so much so that even Google supports us? Verse 15. I love this. He talks about the, the gospel, the being part of the shoes, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, are our lives equipped, driven by? Are you walking with the gospel imperatives? Does the gospel set the trajectory of your life? Are you living the way you do in course of the gospel? Are you being a housewife and under, wondering, where does the gospel take me as a housewife? Are you a financial advisor, a software engineer? Are you asking, where does the gospel take me in my life, in my vocation? Are the gospel, is the gospel marching or setting the trajectory of the way you walk? I love that. Verse 16, the shield of faith. Now, this isn't one of those small ones that you see that, that leaves most of the body exposed. What Paul is referring to here is what it's pronounced the scutum, which is basically a four-foot shield by two and a half feet and looked kind of like a door. And the ranks of the centurions would walk out to battle, and the first rank would position their scutums into the ground, and the second rank would flay the second the shields over the top, and so the opponent would see nothing but an impenetrable barrier of shields. They were indestructible from battle from the front that way. Now, I love how Scripture always talks about, particularly in the Old Testament, God is a shield. Have you ever read that? God is a shield. Right? In 21st century Northern America, we kind of go, oh, that, that's kind of nice. But think about the culture that, uh, that understood that expression. Think about this culture, who at the time were preparing to face, uh, maybe about a century later, so there were rumblings of the Visigoths and the Goths, who are now the Germans. These were the descendants of the Germans, who were known as barbarians. They were wild. They would have cudgels and war hammers and and big broad sticks with nails driven through them, or broadswords, and they would just pummel at you, and all you had was a shield. Now, can you imagine hiding behind a shield while it's getting hacked and destroyed by a barbarian with a war hammer? And the only thing that keeps you alive is a shield that's being pounded and pounded and pounded. And then you read the scripture that says, God is your shield. That's a whole nother dimension than when I just kind of read in my, you know, lazy boy in my home, God is my shield. They understood intimately That God is my shield. He's the only thing that's keeping me alive. He is my only source of protection. He is taking the hits for me. I love when he says that that is the shield of faith. Uh, Let me continue with that. That that, that literally is is in a positive, which Paul is saying, faith is the shield. Then to take the shield then is to appropriate the promises of God on our behalf, and it takes faith. It takes faith when women read what Paul wrote in Ephesians 5. It says, wives, submit to your husbands. They said, do you know my husband? 
But it takes faith to say, okay, I want to submit to him, trusting it's going to work out. It takes faith for husbands to sacrificially love their wives. A husband can say, do you know my wife? It takes faith for children to obey their parents, especially if they're not believers. It takes faith for slaves to listen to a master who may be cruel and harsh, knowing that it'll work out for their benefit. It takes faith for all these things. It takes faith, as Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17, to discern the will of the Lord because you have options before you, but you want to make sure you're choosing the right direction. It takes faith realizing that I may not see things as clearly as I think I see it. And I need to trust what Scripture says. I need to trust the community around me that says, no, no, you don't see this as clearly as you should. I know you think you do, but you don't. It takes faith to keep putting on the armor of God. You know, the Roman centurion we have from historical documents, they didn't love putting on their armor. Uh, records tell us it probably weighed between 35 to 45 pounds, and then you've got the shield and your sword. It, it wasn't nice armor. I mean, it was hot. It was rudimentary compared to what we have today. It was cumbersome. It actually restricted movement. It could lead you to a sense of panic that you can't move as well as you like on the battlefield. But they knew to have faith in their armor because to take any piece of it off left them vulnerable. It takes faith, to be quite honest, looking at the Word of God and saying, I'm going to be obedient, even if I don't understand why. It takes faith to say, I'm going to trust your precepts more than my own wisdom on this. It takes faith to say, even if I feel my life's being restricted by your commands, that I I kind of want to do what I want to do, but you're calling me to something else, I'm willing to restrict my life. It takes faith to have someone say, you don't see this because you're too close, but I see it. It takes faith for someone to say, the thing you're looking to for life is going to betray you, to say, you're right. It takes faith to do all those things, but just like the Roman centurion, we recognize it may feel cumbersome, it may feel restrictive, but it leads to life. And Paul says in verse 17 that the helmet of salvation, older translations would say the helmet of the assurance of salvation. I love how he puts that on the mind, guarding our mind, that we know the gospel truths. Do we understand what scripture teaches? Is your life being filled with scripture? Are you being, is your life being framed by a, a strong theological framework? Or is your life being framed by reality TV, a mixture of what's on the news and some pop culture-esque things? Or are you building your reality around the truths of scripture and letting your mind focus in on those things? And he says, using the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is it something that you just, you're just using it? Not, not in a kind of Pharisaic, self-righteous way, but every decision you're making is being informed by a principle of Scripture. Right? That, that's what Paul is talking about, about employing this armor of God. And by responding this way, believers are able to extinguish the fiery arrows that are being shot at them. Uh, Livy, the Roman historian, would say uh, that the more inexperienced Roman centurions, you could tell who they were because in the heat of battle, no pun intended, as the fiery arrows would be shot at their shields and their shields would eventually start to get consumed, they would throw down their shields in panic and be run through with javelins or spears. And so that was a tactic. 
But the experienced centurion knew, even though you're holding a flaming shield, that's a far better option than to drop your shield and be run through by a javelin and then create a foothold by which the enemy can penetrate the rest of the ranks. And so when it comes to our faith, you know, the enemy comes at us relentlessly every day. And rather than abandon our faith, we need to hold fast and stand because that's where the victory is. When you abandon your faith, it is at that point you think you have freedom, but you're most vulnerable. So Paul says, stand. Just stand your ground. Stand your ground. Partly because also in Ephesians chapter, I think it's 1, 21, 22, Christ has been the victor. All things are laid at his feet. We don't have to charge the hill. The hill's been decimated. Christ, who wore the armor himself, he took care of the victory. We're just the mop-up crew. We are just standing against those trying to make a beeline to get out. Paul says, stand. So he talks about being strong. He talks about standing. Now he wants to talk about the predisposition we need to have for this battle, and that's his verses 18 to 20. And you can't miss Paul's point here. The necessity of prayer is essential. He has two participles here. One is praying at all times. The other participle is keeping alert. Uh, Both of those, if you're looking at the text, praying and keeping alert. Some of your translations just says keep alert. They're modifying the verb in verse 14 to stand. So those two participles, modifying stand, is showing that standing firm, praying, and keeping alert all go together. That's how that works. Jesus made the same point in Mark chapter 14 when he was talking to his, some of his disciples. I think it was Peter and John. Mark chapter 14, verse 38. Jesus says to them, notice the, the analog here, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So what Paul writes here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, Jesus said in Matthew 14, Paul saying, look, praying at all times, keeping alert so that you can basically use the armor of God. Jesus is saying here, keeping alert, watch, and praying. Why? That you don't enter into temptation. You don't give in to the enemy's schemes and methods. Look at verse 18. Four times, you can't miss it. Paul mentions prayer. Believers are to be praying at all times with all prayer, with all perseverance for all the saints. You can't get around this passage. What, what Paul is saying in verses 18 and 20, he's making clear that making best use of the armor of God comes from a life that is dependent upon God through praying. By praying, you make best use of the armor of God and you keep yourself vigilant against the enemy's tactics and methods. New Testament scholar Clint Arnold says this about these uh, three verses, 18 to 20. He writes, the corporate dimension of this passage and the way Paul reflects on the role of prayer, not only here, but also in Ephesians 1 and 3, and if you have not weren't here for our study of Ephesians 1 and 3, I don't know if we have those on CDs or maybe we have them on the website, please listen to them, uh, because they are all talking about how we are to pray, and Paul has in mind Ephesians 6 as he's talking about that in Ephesians 1 and 3, so back to the quote, suggests that a key part of spiritual warfare is in joining other Christians in praying for each other. Just as a soldier would need help in putting on his armor, we are called to arm each other through prayer. This passage sets an agenda for small group prayer times. I love that. Now, if, if prayer is something that comes easy to you, you're really blessed, 
If you're like me, it doesn't. I'm a type A personality, if you hate, in case you haven't noticed that. I'm kind of ready, fire, aim kind of a guy, and prayer is a difficult thing. But I remember in 1989, I was convicted that you need to develop this because it is the foundation of my spiritual strength. And just to let you know, little autobiographical ways of doing it, uh, like I said, for some of you, praying is easy, and you are blessed. For most of us, it's probably not. So here are a couple of tips. Number one, take advantage of every corporate opportunity to pray that there is. Or get a prayer partner. Commit with people to pray. The reason being is you need that accountability. You need that encouragement. You need help people praying so you can listen to the way they pray so you can grow in your prayers. That's a wonderful way to do it. I love that our elders pray on Sunday mornings, and I was joking with one of them this morning. I said, as great as that was, I kind of want us to do that, because I need that. I need to be praying, and I need a good, solid hour with other men who are helping me keep focused. And I'm learning how to pray by listening to them, right? So learn to develop that prayer. Go to be part of corporate prayer. Uh, Another thing you can do is get a smartphone app on prayer. (laughs) I have a smartphone app here, and what I do... This is right on my nightstand. The first thing I do before my feet touch the ground, I grab the smartphone app because on this, I've got my Bible reading plan, I've got a scripture memory plan, and a prayer app. The reason I have all these is because it doesn't come naturally for me, and if I don't have some kind of help, any help, I'm not going to develop that. Now, for maybe some of you, a, a smartphone app does not sound spiritual, but it's helped my prayer life. If you need help that way, get a smartphone app. Um, Find models of prayer like uh, Acts. Anyone know the Acts model of prayer? Ben, did you just nod your head? Or is that Asher? You guys look alike. That's Asher, right? You nodded your head. What's the Acts model of prayer? Ah, oh, you don't know it. Oh, sorry. Put you on the spot. Anybody know the Acts model of prayer? In the back. Yes. And in that order, right? Adoration. Confession. Thanksgiving. Supplication. It's a great, simple model to help keep you on track. So whatever it is you need to do, do those things. Set a timer. That sounds so unspiritual, but set a timer for two minutes and see if you can pray for two minutes. Then the next week, bring it to three minutes. Then the next week to five, then to seven. We need to make our faith practical and real. And the reason I'm camping on prayer is because it's so critical. And prayer, prayer lives are the, probably the things in, in, in short supply. You know, the national average of pastors pray three to five minutes, okay? Three to five minutes, this is an old statistic, a week. Yeah. Not, I'm not talking public prayer times. I'm talking on their own, by themselves, national survey, three to five minutes of prayer. Now, thankfully, there are those who buck that trend, But if pastors are praying at three to five minutes, so we're talking about a minute or so a day, then it stands to reason that we all need to be praying. The point is, Paul is saying that prayer, making use of the armor of God, is dependent on a life in prayer. When you have all that together, you are able to stand against the methods and schemes of the evil one. So that, that those arguments, those scuffles, those things that happen, you're not seeing them for what they are, You're seeing them for what they really are, and you're able to engage the battle well. If we're going to live like Paul writes in Ephesians chapters 4 and 5 and part of 6, we need the full armor of God. 
And in one sense, we've been talking about the armor of God as something God gives to us, God's, you know, the armor of God given to us. But there's another sense of that word where the armor is God itself. The armor of God. God himself is the armor. Does that make sense? So there's a sense we say this is the armor of God. It's what we put on. It's the tools and resources he gives to us. But there's another sense where the armor itself is God. What do we mean by that? Jesus said in John 14, I am the way and I am truth. Paul said in uh, 2 Corinthians 5 that in Christ we become the righteousness of God. In Ephesians 2, 4, Paul says we have peace, the peace of the gospel because Christ is our peace who reconciled us to God and man. Christ is the source and foundation of our faith and he is the word itself, John 1 tells us. Ultimately, Christ is the one who strengthens us. Christ is the one who sustains us. Christ is the one who's praying for us. And as Paul tells believers to put on the armor of God, he's doing nothing different than saying, do what Christ has already done. Do what Christ is doing for you. Christ is the warrior that has gone before us. Christ is the centurion who has slain the enemy. We need to keep our focus on Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word is so rich, it's so encouraging, it's so convicting. Well, I pray that we would be a church that is putting on the armor of God so that we can be aware of the enemy's schemes and extinguish his fiery arrows so that we can fight the battle the way it was intended. Father, we pray that we continue to stand in the grace that is ours in Christ. We thank you that he has won the victory for us and on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, that he is the warrior that we look to, that has conquered sin, overthrown the enemy, and given to us the spoils of war. We pray we would live in light of that. In his name we pray, amen.